Hi, and welcome to The Wedge. My name is Jenny Walkup. I'm the host and one of the producers of this show. Um, I, before I welcome our guest this week, Ben Case, I just want to uh, follow up about a couple of things we talked about last week. A uh, couple quick corrections. It's been 25 years since the Ibrahimi massacre, not 15. And the Israeli elections are on April 9th, not April 2nd. Um, without too much further ado, let's get into this conversation with Ben Case. Hi, Ben. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right. It's been a tough week, tough, tough couple weeks in Pittsburgh, um, but I'm doing all right. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about what's made it tough? Yeah. So um, I think you had talked a bit on your uh, on your in your last episode um, about the trial of Michael Rosfeld, who's the police officer who shot um, Antoine Rose the second three times in the back and killed him um, last summer. Um, he was on trial for homicide and um, he was uh, he was found not guilty. Um, I guess that was now a week ago. Um, and so there's been, um, you know, there's been protests against that and, and all kinds of things going on. Thanks for uh, updating us on that. If someone wants to uh, support Antoine Rose's family, they can uh, go on Cash App and send some funds to his mother. Um, and her tag on Cash App is Antoine's mother or Antoine's mom. I will put it in the show notes so that anyone who's interested in doing that is able to do so. So, Ben, you are... a uh, scholar and an organizer and an anti-occupation Jewish person. How did you sort of develop that stance? Um, yeah, uh, it's been a process. Um, so where I grew up, uh, there were very few other Jewish people. Um, I grew up in, in New Jersey, right across the Hudson River from Manhattan. Um, and even though it was so close to New York, uh, there were there were very few Jews there when I grew up. Um, there's uh, there's more now. Uh, the the synagogue where I grew up um, is is now pretty busy. But um, when I grew up there, there were so few Jews around that they would sometimes struggle to make a minion. I, I remember they would sometimes call on the phone, um, you know, synagogue members who weren't there to see if they could get folks in to make a minion. Um, the minion phone tree. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and, um, so where I went to high school, um, I went to a, a county public school and there were, there were almost no other Jewish people around. Um, I think my senior year, um, I was the only Jewish person in the school. Uh, and so in that environment, um, it was, it was a very diverse school though. I mean, there were folks from all over, all over the county, um, and people from all over the world, um. And um, so that was that was a great uh, educational experience outside the classroom. Um, and, but I also, you know, I faced a lot of uh, a lot of I got a lot of issues for being for being Jewish. Um, you know, uh, you could call it bullying or harassment or, you know, I think even a lot of my friends 
probably didn't even understand. Bullshit is the word that I would probably use. Okay, thanks. Um, <laughs> I, I think even a lot of my friends, though, didn't really even understand how, how much stuff like that adds up. I mean, it's sort of a constant ribbing. That was just one of the things about me that was available to um, to sort to of get at, at me for it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and so in, in that context, uh, it really, you know, the, the sort of the narrative of Israel, um, and most of my Jewish education came from Hebrew school um, and from a few other families around that, that we were friends with um, at Shul. Uh, but the, the narrative that Israel puts out into the world really spoke to me, right? This narr- narrative of being alone, uh, surrounded by enemies and people trying to attack it and, and having to defend itself. Uh, that really made a lot of sense to me. That's how I felt in school and, uh, you know, having to defend myself and always sort of be vigilant um, about who's going to attack me for that um, and, uh, you know, choose my friends and allies and, and what have you. So that made a lot of sense. Um, and even though I didn't know a lot about Israel, the country, I was proud of it for for the story that it tells. Um, and I remember writing a paper when I was in uh, uh, it was a history class, maybe I was a junior, um, that I found years later and it's kind of, you know, cringing. Uh, reading through it, you know, how proud I was. It was a paper about about Israeli independence um, and, yeah. you know, how much I didn't understand the full story there. Um, so I, I uh, became political um, uh, toward the end of uh, when I was in high school, um, more around uh, the attacks on 9-11 than anything. Um I think I was already becoming political. I was reading radical political texts and things like that. But um, the attacks on 9-11 were really clarifying in a lot of ways, um, in part because I saw all of this, just the warmongering and the Islamophobia um, that, that, you know, were everywhere right after the attacks, especially right around, right around there, right so close to New York. Um, I mean, I watched the oh, aftermath. Yeah, you were very close to New York. Yeah, I watched the aftermath with my eyes right across the, right across the river from the, from Sinatra park in Hoboken. Um, you can see the whole thing. Um, and so obviously that was, um, you know, that was really awful. And, um, but the response was, was, it was, you know, really surprising to me, obviously in the direct aftermath, the response, just like a lot of types of catastrophes is always characterized by a lot of mutual aid. Um, and support and things like that. And people really showed up to, to help each other, you know, locally, but more broadly, the, the political rhetoric um, was, was just so, uh, was so violent and racist and Islamophobic. Um, I started wondering, you know, okay, what's actually going on here? You know, what would, what would prompt people to do this in the first place? Um, and I started exploring a little more and learning about U S military bases abroad um, and the history of, of U.S. interventions in other countries and things like that. Um, and so that sort of brought me to, to becoming political. Um, and I joined the left around the anti-war mobilizations uh, in 2003. Um, and so, you know, the left, when I joined that, that, that left, uh, especially the anti-war left, uh, a sort of anti-Israel and Palestinian solidarity stance comes with that. That's just kind of natural and normal in that world. That's just the, that's the rhetoric that I was around. And you know, yeah. to tell you the truth, I don't really remember how. I don't really remember exactly how I reconciled that in my mind, um, but 
I didn't do a whole lot of thinking about it. It was, I think it came along with this sort of political awakening that, oh, there was all these things I was never taught. Um, and, you know, Israel is a settler colonial society and is part of, um, you know, part of the, the uh, you know, the West's colonization. Imperialist. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and, and jumped on board. Um, with uh, with Palestine solidarity stuff, um, and there were some there were some specific events that really that that uh, that solidified some of those beliefs. Even though I think at the time a lot of my views were were problematic, um, you know, in light of in light of things that that I've learned since. Um, but I remember one particular instance uh, in Pittsburgh, um, where, where I've lived most of my adult life. Uh, when I was when I was a college student, um, actually, uh, I think Netanyahu was the I think the, the defense minister at the time, but he came to speak in Pittsburgh, and um, there were protests, uh, obviously organized by a bunch of groups, Palestinian solidarity groups, and I was there with the protests, um, mm-hmm. and uh, there was um, there was a counter protest which uh, a lot of people there were from the Hillel, who I recognized from, you know, like high holidays at the Hillel, um, who were at right. the, counter, the counter-protests, you know, supporting Netanyahu. And there was uh, one moment when, uh, in, 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 our, in the protest, there were speakers, and there was a woman there who was a, a Holocaust survivor who was speaking. Uh, and I remember seeing some of the folks from Hillel that I recognized heckling her. Um, Oh, just yeah, um, and that really stuck with me. And I think that idea—that was sort of, I think, part of how I reconciled that that shift was that oh, so Israel is um, is this thing that's that's wholly illegitimate, and that it's driving you know even even Jews to be anti-Semitic, um, like in this instance. You know, I, I wasn't thinking so, a whole wait, lot about the for, details, but yeah, for clarity, mm-hmm. the. Holocaust survivor was speaking at the protest against Netanyahu. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Great. I was just like trying to track that. Right. That so college students disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, So college students were heckling her. Yeah, it's disgusting. And I think images like that stuck with me and kind of helped me um, maintain maintain that that political stance without thinking about it too much in some ways that were good in some ways that were not as good um but uh so i had very strong stances that had all my opinions on what should happen over there um i i boycotted birthright i refused to go on birthright you know, for political reasons uh which really probably good for you yeah probably um in hindsight uh uh like you know, it's it's not much use to think about what it would have been like if I had, but I am curious. Uh, oh, I can fill you in because I <laughs> did not boycott. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah. Kind of wish I had, but do you want to do you want to say more about that? Oh, uh, God. I mean, so here's the thing. For me birthright was always really kind of like hanky and gross in that I found the word 
birthright to be hinky and gross. Yeah. And like by the time I went on birthright, I was. I'm not I didn't really understand what was going on in Israel, Palestine. I knew that there were human rights abuses. I had been involved in some like anti-war organizing that had put me in contact with uh, Palestinian youth who were like my age and I I had a sense of some of the things that were going on for them and also I felt like I couldn't say anything about it because if I did it meant I wasn't really Jewish and as a Jewish person who um, I often felt like at that time like I, I didn't count or like I was on the edge of counting, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. I think actually um, the first time I met you, I said, well, I'm Jewish, but I'm not that Jewish. And you said, um, please don't say that. That is a horrible thing to say. And that was the first time I had ever heard that. Um, <laughs> so I so thank you for saying that to me, I guess. Um, I felt like I was disconnected from Jewishness, not because I wasn't interested in it, but just because of the sort of particularities of where I had grown up in, like, a rural place without real contact with other Jewish people and how I had, you know, my grown up celebrating Christmas and, you know, these other things because my dad and my stepdad are both not Jewish. And, um, you know, I felt like that made me somehow less qualified to be Jewish, and if I wanted to, like, claim that identity, which I did, and it was important to me, I needed to stay silent about Palestine. Um, So I decided to go on this trip, um, having heard that it was not okay, um, that people were, like, shutting down voices of people who uh, disagreed with Israeli state actions um, and that, you know, having gone on YouTube and watched these videos of people basically being, like, screamed at and told they weren't Jewish and that they, like, needed to decide whose side they were on for just, like, asking questions. And I went on the trip and, uh, honestly, it wasn't like that at all. It, I am sure that there were things that were said that were very problematic, and there were things that I was pretty uncomfortable with. Um, like, the first thing, we, like, showed up, right, and we get out on the, like, into the bus. It's, like, a 40-passenger bus with 40, like, 18-year-olds in it, I can imagine. Wow. That's a scene. Um, God. Uh, yeah. And I'm one of them, right? And, uh... <laughs> The, the like, tour guide, the first thing she says is, welcome home. And I remember being, like, really skeeved out. Like, no, like, I've never been here before. I don't feel like this is my home at all. And then we, like, went through this tour, and honestly, it was, like, the first time that I had ever been around other Jewish people my age in any sort of, like, numbers. I had, like, two Jewish friends in college. But other than that, I really had never met anyone who wasn't, like, related to me who was Jewish. And 
that was really powerful for me. And it was one of the things that pushed me to be interested in like claiming that Jewish identity more and, you know, whatever. Unfortunately for Sheldon Adelson, who funded my birthright trip, um, the way that that has uh, sort of gone for me is that I've become more invested in like understanding what's actually going on in Israel Palestine and like pointing out like there are these huge discrepancies between like what I consider to be morality and like human values and Jewish values and like what the state of Israel is doing and I'm not I'm just like increasingly unwilling to abide by it um but yeah Israel uh on birthright was weird yeah yeah it's I, I i hear a lot of stories like that um yeah and so yeah but i so i refuse to go and part of it what you say really resonates with me um the the name itself was was a big part of the reason the name itself just felt really gross um the whole concept of birthrights in general feels problematic and so especially connected oh, to this yeah. land like, why is it my birthright? I've never been there. I have no relationship with this land. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's the, there's, I mean, as you mentioned, there, for a lot of Jews, I think it's this idea of, of just sort of support of Israel and everything that's Israel is, is a part of the identity. Um, and I think there's also a marginal, but there's still a real identity for anti-occupation Jews that are fully and in every way anti-Israel on everything can kind of provide that voice. Um, and as yeah. I've found, there's, so there's an identity there too, but as I've found, there's less room, or there has been less room until recently, I think, for any nuance there, um, mm -hmm. uh, which is something that I'm really interested in. But I, so I went for the first time to Israel when my, my mother had been really bothered by the fact that I wouldn't go on birthright, um, and that I seemed to be rejecting um, Israel, or I was rejecting Israel, uh, and she um, uh, she was speaking at uh, a conference there, a nursing conference. Um, and she's a midwife, and um, cool. Sort of That's convinced rad. me convinced me to to go to go with her uh, and travel around there. And so while she was in the conference, I agreed. While she was at the conference, I was staying with um, with friends, comrades of mine, who had known from from New York from. Occupy and preoccupy, uh, who, mm -hmm. who lived in Tel Aviv, who were involved in the Center for Jewish Nonviolence and all that's left, and um, some some rad organizing going on there. Um, and that was great for a lot of reasons. But one thing I'll say is, and it's interesting you, you mentioned this when you said, you know, they said, welcome home. One thing I noticed is when I, when I did get to Israel, um, it really stuck with me, but even just when I, from the moment of landing and just being in, in the country. Uh, there was something about it that that I have to admit that felt really good. Um, oh, yeah. It surprised me. It really surprised me. I felt like I didn't realize up to that point that I hadn't ever been around, like, people who looked like me. Like, exactly. I just always was, was like, well, I'm, like, a white person, so I'm a white person. And simultaneously was like, very aware that sometimes people would say shit under their breath about me. Um, I remember being in high school and being at like 
something and someone coming up to me. Uh, I was at I was like tabling at something for this like group I was in called Operation Kindness. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, someone came up and was like oh, talking with me a little bit. And as she walked away, her mother looked at her and said, "Well, she's one of them." And I was like, oh, I know exactly what you mean. And that's really anti-Semitic. Um, and like, I always knew that I could be read as like visibly true. I got like beat up one time um, by these people who like couldn't stop asking me why my nose was so big. Um, and oh. for some reason, I thought that the way to make them quiet was to say like, well, it's because I'm Jewish. That didn't work. As it turns out. <laughs> um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, it's part of life. And uh, I don't remember where I was going with this. Oh, yeah, like I felt like for the first time, everyone looked like me and people would like come up to me on the street and like start speaking in Hebrew to me like they thought I would probably be able to understand. And I definitely couldn't. But that made me feel really good. It made me feel like included in something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I felt really similar, you know, um, and it was something that I hadn't known that I, I, you know, I hadn't known it was, it was a feeling that I had, um, that I had wanted or needed or anything like that. Um, But especially, as I said, sort of coming from growing up where I did and, you know, that, um, again, I'm sorry to hear about that experience of yours, but it's, it's one that also resonates and, you know, uh, you know, even having to either you know, emotionally or physically defend myself in high school on the basis of being Jewish. Um, and then that's just becoming part of who I am, and that's fine. Uh, but then being in this place where, yeah, as you said, like, everyone looks like me somehow. You know, it's it's like a very beautiful multi-ethnic society when somehow it seems like everybody, I, I fit right in, and I my cultural reference points are normal. And, um, yeah, there was a, there was a really, um, there was a really wonderful, warm, feeling about that and part of that really frightened me because um you know nationalism is such a dangerous tool especially for people who feel um who feel you know marginalized the idea that this is a place now that this is our place where we can be you know um where we can be ourselves uh, I just saw how easily, if I didn't have any of the historical understanding or or sort of political values that I had, I wouldn't. I, I, how? Why would I ask any more questions than that? You know, that feeling alone would be all I would need. Um, yeah. So I remember being alarmed by how good it felt to be there. Um, uh, you know, knowing what I know about about the place. Um, and about yeah, that's the very real. Um, so yeah, that sticks with me. And then, so, um, so I was going to go on this, um, on this tour run by Breaking the Silence, um, a tour of Hebron. So Breaking the Silence, um, as I'm sure many people know, but if you don't, um, is a really great organization of, um, uh, IDF, uh, or Israeli Defense Forces, the Israeli military, um, veterans, and I think some active duty uh, soldiers as well, uh, who just go public about some of the stories of, um, um, you know, that they have based on, 
being part of the occupation, being part of um, you know policing or or you know working in the occupied territories, um, and they take tours to uh, to the West Bank, um, specifically Hebron, and um, and just show people what the occupation is. Uh, this is a you know this is considered a huge threat to a lot of folks in Israeli society. Um, and I think, I don't remember the exact terms of it, but they were declared some sort of a, or someone made a, some politician has made comments about them being an enemy of the state, or I forget if there was a legal aspect of that, but they certainly are under a lot of pressure um, because yeah. of how threatening that is to, to what Israel is, is just showing people what the occupation is. Um, is uh, I am really interested to hear about this because I also went to Hebron with a definitely sort of pro-occupation or like very pro-Israel trip to Israel. So after I went on Birthright, I was like very motivated to like learn more about that component of my identity and like what it means to be Jewish. And I started studying Hebrew, which went, it was challenging to do on your own as it turns out. Um, (laughs) And then I went back on this second trip that like, really really solidified the things i had been thinking about um you know israel's treatment of palestinian people and land and that trip was we went to hebron and uh they definitely didn't want to talk about it um so i'm very interested to hear what your experience there was and i went with the knowledge that actually one of the you know on birthright they have like soldiers who are your age basically come on the trip with you right and one of the soldiers who came on the trip with me i became fairly close with and um he told me some stories about like how he was stationed in hebron and like the worst things he ever saw were acts of violence committed by illegal israeli settlers against palestinian people um, in hebron yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear about your experience there as well, because I, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure seeing it from a different perspective changes things, but but that place itself, I mean, just just seeing it um, for me was a it big was ghostly. Part. Yeah, it was like hollow. It's uh, it's a really terrifying place. Um, a friend, uh, an Israeli friend of mine, had once described it to me as the worst place in the world. Um, Mm. and seeing it, I mean, it, it, you know, I believe it. Um, yeah, uh, obviously, you know, things like worst is not always helpful when we're talking about, we're talking about violent depression, but it's, uh, it's, it's really, it's really shocking. Um, you know, so this is a city that's split by, by the occupation. So part of it is under, uh, Palestinian authority control and part of it is under Israeli Mm -hmm. government control. Um, they literally call them H1 and H2, which is if it couldn't be, you know, as if we couldn't make it feel more like apartheid, but to actually label uh, the, you know, the different areas like that. Um, But there's still a a bunch of Palestinians living in the Israeli-controlled part of the city. And um, Mm -hmm. that's where, to me, it was most, the the sort of, um, the horror of the occupation was most, apparent because the the 
settlers there live under Israeli police authority. So if there's a crime committed, the Israeli police have to get sent from from Israel proper uh, to come check it out. But the Palestinians mm-hmm. who live in the very same place are under military jurisdiction. So the Israeli so soldiers the, wait, wait. there. So the Palestinians who live in, uh, which one's H1, which one's H2? Do you know? I think it, I think H2 is the uh, Israeli-controlled uh, part. Okay, so Palestinians who live in the Israeli-controlled part are under different legal authority than Israeli people who live in that same section of that same city. Exactly. So that's it, completely fucked up. Yeah. It's it's all of the worst things. Um and you know, soldiers would would just tell us about their experiences there where because they have jurisdiction over Palestinians but not the settlers, if we imagine if a settler um attacks a Palestinian person, which happens all the time, mm-hmm. um and a soldier is there and sees it. The soldier is not legally allowed to touch the settler to stop them because they have no jurisdiction over them. Just like in, you know, in the U.S., uh, a soldier who's, you know, just walking down the street doesn't have any jurisdiction. Right, exactly. So it's the same there. So there's nothing they can do. Cop abroad, but not here. Right, right. So even the soldiers who have any sense of, you know, uh, of right and wrong, they see someone attack someone, they're not legally able to intervene the only thing they can do if they want to actually save the person from being horrendously injured or killed is to arrest the palestinian person um and so a soldier was was telling stories about how they've had to do this Um, but of course then they're part they're in the the military uh the military court system um and uh and meanwhile if there's a criminal complaint filed you know by the time the police get there if they even wanted to do their job right, obviously there's no one who's going to testify. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's like there's that, there's basically impunity on the part of the settlers, yeah, um, <clears throat> toward Palestinians. Uh, which again, I mean, I, 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 it's just it's it's just so painful for me to think about, you know, what this does to everybody's humanity involved in a situation like this. A situation like this is just so inhumane. Um, yeah. I uh, remember when I went to Hebron, we were taken to the sort of like final resting place of the patriarchs who are both the patriarchs of Judaism and Islam. And it's like this big sort of like towering stone building and there are separate doors for for Jews and Muslims and... There are some places where you can, like, look in and see a... So there's one or... So there are some um, graves that are only available on one side, and there are some that are only available on the other. And so there are some that you just, like, cannot go and worship at if you are Palestinian, and there are some that you cannot go and worship at if you are Jewish. Or I think there's, like, one on each side. I'm not... My recollection of that details a little hazy and i remember standing and looking into this room and seeing this like you know sort of like 
memorial and on the other side seeing another like stone archway and other people looking in and between us there was bulletproof glass like surrounding this like grave site as if that was supposed to make us feel safe and you know the (laughs) the tour leaders were like so and that was i think in several rooms and the tour leaders were like so like yeah this is so equal everyone gets to see the like patriarchs and you know once a year on you know uh ramadan it's only allowed for muslims and once a year on i think they said passover but it might have been the high holy days it's only available for jews so everyone gets their own special time here and i was like i don't like listen i'm from america and so are you and i thought we learned about separate but equal like a long time ago that's unacceptable to me and so jarring to be told that it that it's okay or that they think it's okay yeah yeah absolutely um yeah i remember seeing the same thing with the bulletproof glass there uh and you know that whole place is just it's just the sort of um the normalization of that type of violent segregation uh it's dystopic it is dystopic. And there's that main street in Hebron where that used to be, I mean, you can see these pictures where, you know, it used to be this vibrant, thriving, you know, market sort of main mm-hmm. street. And it's now just completely empty. It's the dividing street between the sectors. And it's oh, just, yeah. It's just, a, I think uh, they call it a sterile zone, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they do. Um, Which is vile. And on the, on the side of um, where... Um, where Palestinian people live, you know, people's people's doors have been welded shut so they can't get out onto mm-hmm. the street that way, into the you know into the sterile zone. So they have to leave through the back of their places. And on the front of their mm-hmm. their houses, you know, there's all this um, this graffiti, you know, this, uh, really disgusting racist graffiti. Uh, and you know, so at some point there, we we crossed over the people who are from the U.S. or from places who places other than Israel. Um, can cross over into the the Palestinian controlled side of the city. Israelis aren't allowed to, but at, so the, the guides kind of stop at the at the at the border. There's a checkpoint there, and we crossed over mm-hmm. there. Um, and this is the sort of thing where people have told me since people who have not Jewish people who have not been to Palestine say, you know, I would never go there because you know it's dangerous and you'll get killed. They all want to kill you. Uh, you know, we didn't have any. Mm-hmm. Security. We didn't have any. I didn't know anybody. Um, I'm not even sure. Oh, see, when I went to Hebron, we went in a bulletproof bus. And we just walked around over there. And uh, it's just, I mean, it's almost unsettling given how inhumane that city is, the the status quo Mm -hmm. of of the city. It's almost, uh, it's almost unsettling how normal it seems over there. I mean, people are just going about their day. You know, we got, I like, bought a kefia from somebody and got a falafel sandwich. Um, people are, were very friendly and normal seeming. Um, you know, we got a couple dirty looks, which is so minimal compared to what, I mean, I couldn't believe people weren't just spitting on us. Um, I, yeah. you know, I felt like in, if I was in their position, I would. And of course there's no, like, you know, these people live, live this way and it's, you know, people were very, we're very kind and gracious. I remember having a 
having a political discussion with the, the guy who, who sold us falafel. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, um, it just sort of, uh, it just sort of, well, I guess it just increases the heartbreak of that place. Yeah. Um, it was just people who were on their land trying to live their lives. Mm. Um, any case, so that was a, yeah, I mean, I think, so I came back from that, um, from that tour, you know, thinking, I, I used to think things were much more simple in terms of solutions over there. And in one sense, things just felt infinitely more complicated but in another sense, it felt so much simpler. You know, it's like the political solutions might be complicated and this and that, but the status quo can't be allowed to go on. I mean, that was just the, it was just as clear as anything has ever been uh, to me. The status quo is absolutely unacceptable and it can't be allowed to go on. Um, and so now when people want to argue about specifics, um, I, just, I just tell people they have to go see it. Yes, it's complicated. Yes, all the things, you know, uh, all the specifics are, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of elements, there's a lot of moving parts, there's a lot of people's interests. That's all true. Just go see it. You know, if you go see it up, up close, um, I don't think you can come away thinking anything other than this has to end. Yeah. I want to move on to talking about your article just because um honestly it was sort of formative for me in the way that i think about israel as a state um and yeah so i just want the opportunity to talk about it even though this is also a really important conversation yeah totally um so one of the things that I struggled with uh, sort of earlier on in talking with you about Israel-Palestine is your argument that um, the sort of like ally slash oppressed relationship isn't the best model for thinking about um, people, Jews supporting Palestinians. And I wonder if you can delve into why you think that is also yeah, with the sure. caveat that after thinking about it for a long time, I think you're probably right. Um, uh, thanks. And I'm also, I'm certainly also open to being, um, to being wrong. Uh, and it, also to clarify, it's not that it's certainly not that I don't think, um, there's no place for, for Jewish allies in the Palestinian struggle. Like I hope, no one takes it that way. That's mm -hmm. certainly not what I think. Um, but I think that in the in the kind of model that we often use to understand allyship in the U.S. at least, um, the idea that there is in any sort of given given struggle, um, there is an oppressed people or a people who are, are most affected by um, a particular form of oppression, um, and that they're um, uh, that, you know, the best models is for those people to be leading their own liberation struggle and that others um, sort of function as allies 
in that particular struggle. And what that's meant to mean is something like um, taking the lead of the people who are most oppressed um, and, um, and then supporting in ways that they can or leveraging privilege in ways that they can to, to help or to highlight the, the voices in the struggle of, of folks who are most oppressed. And I think that that's, um, that, you know, that, that can certainly be appropriate in, in many contexts. Um, I think there's limitations to that model in and of itself, um, in addition to there being really important aspects of it. But when it comes to, um, to Israel-Palestine, I think um, there's, um, there's this way that, that, that importing that framework um, can, uh, can limit our thinking about, about why some of the some of the Jewish folks that we're that we're sort of hoping to persuade, um, uh, why some of them think the way they do about Israel, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, for some for some political purposes, that's less important than others. Um, but you know, if our project as um, as Jews who believe in liberation for uh, for our people as well as for Palestinians and others, then I think it's it's important to to also uh, try to understand. Uh, why some of our people support this thing. Um, And so this is connected to me uh, to, you know, in the sort of identity politics framework that we often understand movements in in the U.S. um, uh, as a corollary to the the sort of oppressed and ally um, relationship for folks who are fighting for liberation. There's sort of an understanding of um, uh, oppressed and oppressor when it comes to ethnicity and race, it's usually understood around white people and people of color. Um, Mm -hmm. And this framework comes from, in large part, from the black liberation struggles uh, in the the 60s and 70s. Um, In the United States. What's that? In the United States. In the United States, right. Right, okay. Um, Who were, um, you know, who were uh, developing... Uh, a radical politics around um, uh, liberation from, you know, what they understood is, as Black U.S. Americans um, basically functioning as an internal colony. So there's these political struggles all over the world where people are, are fighting against uh, European colonizers um, mm-hmm. and these national liberation movements. And, you know, radical Black uh, thinkers and activists uh, saw themselves as in, in deep solidarity with those peoples based on the legacy of slavery um, and mm-hmm. um, and saw themselves as an internal colony. And the legacy yes. of colonization in Africa. Right, yeah. Which is right. obviously yeah. tied to, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so being in, in deep solidarity with those struggles. Uh, and um, and so there's a there's sort of a connection to this understanding of, and you know, of, of race in the U.S. as white and black. Um and, um, and this idea of, of uh, anti-colonial struggle um, and an allyship kind of develops, develops out of that. Um, and, and I think uh, to a large degree influences the way we think about these things today. And I think um, there's, you know, that's really, that's really powerful and good. Um, I don't think it, it applies precisely to um, Israel and Palestine. And I think um, one of the issues with that is that Jews don't fit well in the white POC framework. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, that's part of what I was talking about, I think, with, like, and what you were talking about, about, like, experiencing anti-Semitism as a teen. Like, right. okay, I'm not black, I'm not oppressed in the sort of, like, person of color way, I can sometimes pass as white, and at the same time, if someone wants to, like, yeah, they can pick me out of a crowd. And what does that mean? And also, the other component here is that, like, there are Jews of color who are equally Jewish and, you know, equally important. Of course, right. So there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of vectors here. So right, Jews are a multi-ethnic and multiracial people. That's one part of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in terms of focusing on, on Jews as a people, in addition to being multi-ethnic and multiracial, um, you know, in focusing on what it is that makes Jews Jews, uh, it's it's a very complicated it's a very complicated answer that, that intertwines um, things like ethnicity and culture and religious practice and all kinds of you know common histories um, within different places uh, and so that um, uh, that type of identity as well as um, understanding the history of antisemitism uh, again it doesn't fit well in a in a dichotomous oppressed oppressor framework. Um, a lot of anti-Semitic myths since modern anti-Semitism was born um, in the 19th century in Europe um, have to do with Jews controlling the world, right, as we know, controlling the powerful institutions, right. uh, which is which is not typical of a lot of other stereotypes you'll hear about oppressed peoples. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, there's all these sorts of elements that make it that make it dissimilar from from, um, um, from a lot of other um, a lot of other, uh, you know, uh, contexts where you would understand racism as being a little bit more dichotomous. Um, and so, you know, to me, in trying to in trying to seek out understanding in terms of how some folks could defend uh, Israel no matter what, um, I tried to go into understanding Jews as a historically oppressed people uh, and understanding mm-hmm. the history of antisemitism. Um which is hard to do if you only understand yourself as an ally, just to connect to your question. Um, yeah. So I wanted to see, okay, well, what if we look at Israel? I mean, we look at, um, uh, typically when we think about decolonization or anti-colonial struggle in Israel and Palestine, we're going to think about Israelis being settler colonizers and Palestinians um, fighting against that colonization, which, again, I think is a legitimate frame. Um, I also think it's a legitimate frame to look at uh, the Zionist movement as an attempt at decolonization for Jews. Um, it's a failed attempt that, uh, in my opinion, um, that, that mm-hmm. results in a lot of the, the, you know, the horrible violent status quo that we have now. Um, but still trying to see that as an attempt, I think, was, is important uh, because it clarifies a lot, yeah. of, a lot of things. I mean, whenever you start talking about, like, Israel and Palestine, like, the third thing that comes out of anyone's mouth is, well, the Holocaust, or, well, like, Jews have been oppressed for so long. And that's true, and that, like, fear and trauma is genuine, um, and it's something that, you know, so many of us struggle with on a daily basis 
as well. And that's part of what makes it so complicated is understanding that like, yes, this trauma is real and that doesn't always justify these actions and it doesn't make these actions actually the right move for us as a people, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it, it doesn't ever justify those actions. Um, um, but it can help us understand them a little bit better in some instances. Um, and it's certainly yeah. not to apologize for any of any of what's been done in the name of Zionism. But um, even beyond the sort of, right, the Holocaust comes up right away. But even before, I mean, you know, the, the Zionist movement starts well before the Holocaust. Um, but it starts amid a, a wave of pogroms and uh, and anti-Jewish violence and um, and state policies across Europe uh, in the 19th century. Uh, and a lot of folks, if you read not just the anti-Semitic uh, literature, but, but um, works by Jews across the political spectrum, of course, not everyone agreed, um, or, but people also who were, you know, who were on the left, who were, who were not Jewish, who were writing about Jews, a sort of common framework in uh, the, the zeitgeist in Europe in the time about national formation and statehood had to do with, well, the problem with Jews is that they don't have a state of their own. Uh, the problem is that they're stateless mm-hmm. people, that they're wandering people. Um, and, and, you know, whether or not this went in an anti-Semitic direction or if it went in, in you know, attempting to go in a solidaristic direction um, or in, um, you know, auto-emancipation, as, as Leon Pinsker put it. He wrote the first, I think, pamphlet on, uh, on Zionism. Um, whatever it was, the solution to, to the Jewish problem was Jews having a place, a home, a state. Um, and of course, for a lot of the folks who felt connected to their traditions, the place that felt like home to the Jews for thousands of years that we've turned towards when we pray, um, is Jerusalem. So, um, mm-hmm. so this idea that the Jews should go back and, and establish land rights and basically have a home there, uh, is connected to a legacy of, uh, of displacement and violence that they were facing in Europe well before the Holocaust. Um, Right. Now, when they get there is where, you know, obviously now the problem becomes how are they relating to people who are living there? Um, and I think there's... It sort know, of reminds on... me of like, of like, um, and I don't know how much about this, you know, but uh, Marcus Garvey and the like Black Star Cruise Line. Yeah. I think... Um, very yeah, similar, think a... like trying to take all of the black people in... U.S. America put them on a ship and like send them to back to Africa and all you know people in Africa being like excuse me wait a minute um I'm not sure about this you haven't been here in a while it's it's hard for us to figure out what to do with you you don't speak any of the languages that we speak um and also that being like a very legitimate source of visions of liberation for black americans yeah i think there are there's definitely political connections to to um to garvey's movement and i think are really interesting i'm also really interested to a project that i haven't i haven't had the time to pick up but i'm really interested to look um to look at um the history of liberia in this light as well Mm. um uh you know until today americo liberians constituted sort of a different um uh ethnic and cl- have a different ethnic and class position um to a lot of other folks there and i'm really curious about that history as well 
Um, yeah. But yeah, so I think there's there there are other sort of comparable ideas at the time, uh, and uh, of course, low Liberia is is earlier. But um, mm-hmm. the uh, this this idea of sort of going and establishing a home there um, is I think is is for a lot of those folks about decolonizing. It's about decolonizing themselves from Europe um, and going back to who who we were was the idea. Um, so I was trying to understand the movement from that perspective, um, from people who see it that way, and you know, um, and trying to find uh, sort of some sympathy for folks who might think, you know, now that everyone says the problem is Israel, um, you know, it's like from the perspective of these folks who feel like they're fighting anti-Semitism everywhere they see it, uh, they, you know, the problem everyone says is that we don't have a home. Everyone says the problem is you don't have a mm-hmm. home, and then they go and establish a home, and then everyone says, oh, the problem is that you have a home. Um, so I can see from that perspective how folks would view the, you know, the knee-jerk defense of Israel as just part of fighting anti-Semitism historically. Um, uh, and this is part of what I was saying earlier about what was so frightening to me about going to Israel and feeling how, feeling that powerful connection, um, uh, how easy it would be to overlook um, or even buy into violence against Palestinians or anybody else they perceived as, as kind of threatening that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I might have gotten a bit off topic there, but the... No, I think that that's all sort of part of the story. I want to ask you sort of like one more question that's also kind of a doozy, sorry. Um <laughs> about this article i actually have so many more questions um and i think what i'm gonna do if it's okay with you is post a link to this in the show notes so if people are interested in reading it they can because um i think that it's a it's it's very well written and it's very accessible um and also like there's a lot here and we can't get to it all in this amount of time it's my i appreciate that my other question is you have this like vision of liberating Jews from Israel in a way and seeing that as seeing Israel as like related to anti-Semitism and liberating Jews from that connection being another level of decolonization. I'm wondering if you can walk me through that just a little bit. Um, yeah, that is a <laughs> Sorry um, to make you sigh, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, it's such a big thing. And I, you know, um, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, you know, I'm, I'm still working to understand these things as I think a lot of us are. Um, and it's also worth, mm-hmm. worth mentioning that the, the article that, that you referenced, you know, I wrote that over the course of a few years, um, uh, while I was trying to kind of figure out some of these things for myself, um, trying to understand, uh, you know, anti-Semitism that I had seen and was seeing on the left as well as on the right um, and trying to understand some of the, the complexes that Jewish activists seem to have uh, on the left um, and kind of coming back in a lot of ways to Jewish practice, um, mostly via, um, mm. by activism, um, which, which, you know, you know something about, I think. Uh, Sometimes, yeah. Um which, you know, is a lot of revolving around the work we were doing in Pittsburgh. Uh, mm-hmm. 
but um, yeah, I mean, I think so. So, I mean, it connects, I think, kind of what I was just saying before, but a lot of the, um, you know, the folks who ended up coming from, from Europe, Jewish folks from Europe and relocating to Palestine um, uh, brought with them a, lo a lot of white supremacist ideas that they had both internalized that had been sort of applied against them and also that they had internalized just as members of European society. Um, and so, mm. um, and, and replicated a lot of those, uh, a lot of those practices and, um, and sort of, you know, um, uh, put into effect a lot of those beliefs vis-a-vis uh, -vis relationships with Palestinians um, and also with, with um, Palestinian Jews, Arab Jews who lived, uh, who lived there and, and elsewhere around who also relocated there. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of, uh, you know, sort of a sense of superiority that I think a lot of folks brought with them, um, which, which itself is very complicated because, again, some of it comes from just, you know, uh, kind of internalizing some of European ideas um, and also, I think some of it comes from probably from a uh, you know a trauma response um, or a se or a sense of that. Anyways, I'm sure there was some type of a combination. Um, but one way or another, you get folks who who um, really go all in on remaking themselves uh, in in kind of a uh, in the image of a new. I mean, what what you know, Franz Fanon, who is uh, you know, wrote a lot of the um, uh, the work on decolonization that's still referenced until this day, um, and that I base a lot of the article I wrote off of. Um, you know, what he calls the a new man, so he, it's gendered man, um, right. but the idea of a sort of a, a new person that that colonized people can become, and when they control their own, you know, their own destiny, their own land, and that a lot of um, the work of decolonizing is uh, remaking yourself. Um, and so uh, a lot of the new, um, uh, well, Israelis and, and prior to Israel, the, the, um, the Zionist Jews who relocated to Palestine, um, and a lot of folks really leaned into this idea and remaking themselves kind of in the, in the photo negative, as I put it in the article, of the stereotypes that had been levied against um, Jews in Eastern Europe specifically. Right? So the idea of of the shtetl Jew being uh, weak and conniving and sickly mm -hmm. and um, uh, you know cowardly, uh, these are like a lot of the qualities, the stereotypes of of Jews in, in Europe. Um, and so you see the creation of the the Sabra Jew, as it came to be known, uh, mm -hmm. the, the sort of in, in the inverse of that, right? Like um, Strong, hardworking, courageous, um, gun-toting, right? Gun-toting, you're right, and so and that yeah. connects to the militarism, because two of the things that were you know the stereotypes about Jews and also the critiques about the problem with Jews were that Jews didn't farm, had no connection to the land, um, and that Jews weren't soldiers; they couldn't fight, they were weak and cowardly, and so. A lot of the imagery, if you look through the, the sort of imagery of the Sabra Jew early on, um, there's a lot of um, a lot of great photos um, you can find if you dig around. Sabra about... is in the hummus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, the... great. Just checking in on the spelling of that. Yeah, Sabra is in the hummus. It comes from it's a uh, 
it's sort of an adaptation of, of the name for the Hebrew name for the prickly pear cactus, uh, which is called sabar ah. in Hebrew. Um, I think it's spelled in, in uh, Roman letters. I think it's spelled T-Z-A-B-A-R, um, uh, which incidentally, uh, maybe not even coincidentally, is not native to Palestine, by the way, but was um, imported as a, a desert-friendly crop. Um, but mm. the sabar cactus, which grew all over the place there, is uh, characterized by being um, prickly, uh, sort of sharp on the outside, hard and sharp on the outside, and but also very um, soft and sweet on the inside. And so this was supposed to characterize the sabra juice, tough and hard, but also still um, soft, you know, soft and warm on the inside, sweet on the inside. Um, but a lot of the okay, imagery... So can see, you take me to... To how that, how sort of like removing our, or not removing, but like adjusting our connection to the state of Israel um, connects to our decolonial effort. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm getting there. Um, so, getting there. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the, um, so in and of itself, this, this doesn't seem bad. Right. So like I was just saying, so if Jews aren't supposed to be farmers and soldiers. We see all this uh, photographic imagery, a lot of highlighting of, of the Sabra Jew farming and and carrying guns. Um, and this is kind of like promoting this is who the Jewish person is becoming. So the problem is that it's still in a reference to European antisemitism. The reference point still is this thing that we're, you know, we're trying to we make ourselves out of um but not in reference to the place they were actually living in uh, and the people that they were relating to there like palestinian folks um specifically um and so it's a it was a kind of it, it ended up um being and we see it today in the sort of israeli military culture and you know and israeli uh israeli government now um and really shockingly so under under netanyahu recently um, is a like a real pivot towards uh, towards white supremacist ideas, um, which uh, ideologically are anathema to Jewish identity. Um, so the idea, um, so again, this idea of, of like if, if we're gonna if we're gonna remake ourselves, um, you know, we have to remake ourselves in a liberated image. Um, and uh, and for me, when it comes to Israel and Palestine, and I can only say so much about this. I mean, I, I feel um, uh, you know I feel that I have a right to speak on this, being a Jewish person, in part because of my connection, um, you know, a connection I feel to that place, and also because a lot of the things that are done in Israel are done in the name of Jewish people, um, mm-hmm. and a lot of the justification in the U.S. for supporting Israel are is. You know, is that it's um, it's because it's supporting Jewish people. But I also don't, you know, I also don't live there, and I've never lived there. So, um, so just with that as a caveat, um, absolutely. To me, if we're going to remake Jewishness in a liberated image, truly, and decolonize Jewish identity, um, then it has to be um, uh, an image that's that's liberated in terms of solidarity with other oppressed peoples that that we live around and relate to. Um, not in reference to, you know, 
are trying to invert our previous oppression um, and you know sort of understand ourselves as this as this perpetually oppressed people where the reference point is our oppressor um, our reference point should be solidarity with other oppressed peoples and um, and uh, you know an intercommunal liberation yeah I feel like we have so much more to talk about and also um, it's time for us to take a brief break and then um, come back for memes from my bubby. Was that too much? Did I lose you there? No, you didn't lose me. Oh, hi. Sorry, you did not lose me. Um. <laughs> So I was, <laughs> so here's what happened. Uh, I am drinking a, a crowler of beer, and which is like two beers in a can. And I desperately had to go to the bathroom. And so I put you on mute and I just left you on mute accidentally. So I'm sorry. Great. Thanks for, uh, <laughs> thanks for sharing thanks for about sharing. your life. <laughs> <laughs> um, you got a file opened up? I do. All right. Yikes. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, okay, welcome back for uh, memes from my booby. Here's a meme, uh, not actually posted by my booby, uh, but posted by the Israel Project, with which my booby has reposted several times. And Ben, could you just uh, give me a quick description of what you see here? Okay, uh, if I have to. <laughs> um, all I can right. describe it if you don't want to. Uh, no, it's uh, it's fine. Um, so this appears to be posted by the Israel Project. Um, the image is, um, it's a split image. Uh, there's a top half and a bottom half. Uh, the top half is in black and white, and the bottom half is in color. The top half is labeled 1945. And uh, it appears to be um, Jewish concentration camp inmates uh, being marched by uh, Nazi officers. Um, and the bottom appears to be IDF soldiers uh, with their with their rifles, U.S. made rifles. It looks like. Um, and the, the description says, uh, with well, the, wait, so the soldiers are, are running in the same yeah. direction that the, um, Holocaust victims are marching. Right. Right. So and they're running across the somewhat... desert with their guns aimed. Correct. So they're, it, the, the direction of the group is in line. It's meant to mirror each other a little bit, but in the mm -hmm. bottom one, the Jewish people have the rifles and are the soldiers. Uh, and are running and, you know, I just supposed to be looking heroic and in action. Yeah. So the text um, says, uh, Jewish star, never again, Jewish star. Uh, 70 years later, the Jewish people can defend themselves by themselves. Uh, never again. If you want to stop rising hate, stand up and add your name to uh, peacenothate.com. Please don't go there. Yeah, and I think this uh, this character, there's one comment that appears to have been made here. 
um, which I think is also worth adding in, even though the person commenting, um, uh, who I won't name, not, not that I know them, but still, um, yeah, don't, don't name them, clarifies that, uh, that they stand with Israel. So it's meant, it's not meant to be, a you know, a challenge to this, although I think it, it could be, um, so the post says uh, Jewish people can defend themselves by themselves. And, and the comment says, agreed, but don't forget that the U.S. taxpayer is defending Israel to the tune of $3 billion a year. Um, and so... Yeah, and this whole image has 3.4 thousand shares and over 400 comments. This is not like a a nothing image. Plenty of people have seen this. Right, right. That's just a comment that's visible, I guess, also. Yeah. Um, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> yeah, so I think, what are the themes that this brings out for you? Uh, I mean, you know, this is, um, you know, this is clearly propaganda that's playing on, on Jewish fears that I think a lot of us have... Um, have this sort of cultural trauma um, where a main re- reference points for, you know, for politics are, you know, what's going to happen when they all come for us again. Um, and um, which is, by the way, a very real question. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But this, this sort of that, that, you know, that's still, I think a reference point for a lot of people. And this is clearly propaganda that's trying to tap into that saying, well, that, you know, that was the case. There was nothing to defend us before, but now, um, you know, we defend ourselves now. Again, sort of this image of, of the uh, the Jewish soldier in Israel um, being the, the inverse of, of who we were in the world before that. Um, but now we defend ourselves against all the people who want to kill us. Um, and so I guess that's supposed to make us feel identification with Israel. It's supposed to make us feel safe or proud. Um, Yeah, that's what I got. Yeah, I mean, what stands out to me about this image is that they want to direct us to peacenothate.org and if you want to stop rising hate, stand up, add your name, Hmm. you know, to this website. And for me, the image of five people running forward rifle rifles i don't know that much about guns yeah large guns aimed ahead is not peaceful it's just not and you know i think that that speaks to this thing that you were speaking about earlier about like comparing this image of the shuttle jew to the what do you call it the the sabra jew right the hummus jew um (laughs) And, like, being strong and powerful and and aggressive and masculine. And I don't particularly want to be aggressive or masculine, to be totally honest. Um, And I don't want to be violent. And I don't want our identity as Jewish people to be bound up in this necessity of violence of behaving violently, of hurting people in the same ways that we were hurt so many times before. It just seems, like, twisted. 
Yeah, I think that's really well said. Um, and um, and it also, not, yeah, the masculinity, I think, is a big part of it. Um, and that's something we didn't get a chance to talk about earlier. But uh, mm-hmm. but I think masculinity is a big part of of that that sort of image the, of the of the Sabraju that connects to this this um, you know the, the image of the IDF soldier is this uh, kind of the toughest soldier in the world um, kind of propaganda that Israel puts out. Um, I think there's definitely a connection to um, to masculinity in part because of this um, the the way anti-Semitic propaganda kind of emasculated um, Jewish people previously. And also because, you know, masculinity is so often connected uh, to this type of, um, to this type of violence, the type of violence that Israel on a daily basis um, uh, is enacting in Palestine. Yeah. Um, And I think that also that, like perception of masculinity as powerful and good and important is also a legacy of white supremacy and of colonialism. So many places that were colonized were not necessarily like patriarchal societies. And, and this is my like, right. Coming into this as someone who's studying anthropology I mean, it's just not factual that patriarchy is the status quo everywhere and has always been that way. Um, and, you know, some level of that comes from this spread of colonialism from white Europeans um, who are going out and sort of like deciding who local leaders are and using their own constructs about what what makes someone of leadership quality. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, to, to connect back, you know, in, uh, in a lot of friends, Fanon's work, um, you know, he was like a therapist and, um, a lot of his work talks about how masculinity was manipulated, um, by colonialism, um, and how a lot of the sort of, um, uh, anti-colonial impulses, um, especially among men, um, take form via masculine violence. Hmm. I actually did not know that. Um, I recommend people read Friends Fanon whenever I get the opportunity to. I will have to read it when I finish all the other things I'm supposed to be reading, (laughs) my large backlog. Um, When I finish half of my large backlog, (laughs) I will add that in. (laughs) (laughs) um is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up um no i'll probably think of all those things you know five minutes after we wrap up well that's great i would love (laughs) to have you back ben because i feel like there's so many things that we didn't get to address that are really important and that i know that you're like my personal expert on uh um it's true if you say so Um, um it's true. Ben, do you have any, like, thing you want to plug, an article, a social media that, you know, people could find you on if they were interested? Oh, wow. Um, you put me on the spot. Uh, no, actually, I don't, have, uh, I don't have a website or anything like that, although I'm told I'm supposed to if I ever want to get a job. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, no, I would say just um, 
you know, I would just reiterate if you wanted to, to again, just, um, you know, share the information on how you can support Antoine Rose II's family uh, in Pittsburgh feels like the most, the most present thing here at the moment. Um, yeah. And so, um, so that's what comes to mind. I mean, there's just, there's just like endless things I'm sure I'd want to want to promote. Um, but that's the thing that comes to mind right now. If you go to Pitt, vote yes for a union, graduate student union. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Also, yeah, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're organizing, um, we've been organizing for a union for graduate student workers at University of Pittsburgh for uh, four and a half years we've been working on it, um, which is wild. But uh, it's finally coming down to a vote. Um, it's going to be a little more than two weeks away. Um, so if you happen to be a graduate student at University of Pittsburgh, uh, you can vote um, Monday to Thursday, April 15th to April 18th. Um, and if you're not, then I encourage you to, to share our stuff and support us. I think unionizing um, higher education is, uh, is a really important part of, of pushing for a more, um, a more democratic and a more equitable society as the U.S. economy shifts. Um, so I think it's, a, it's part of an important struggle. Thank you so much, Ben. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email me at thewedgecast at gmail.com. Uh, feel free to submit memes from your bubby uh, or, you know, whatever pro-Israel Facebook pages or social media pages you follow. Um, please also feel free to submit your stories about being an anti-occupation Jew. I'd love to hear them. I'm always curious. Um, if you want to follow us on Twitter, that's at wedge underscore podcast. Um, and that's all. Thank you for listening. Bye.